Have you watched the movie Avengers Endgame? Yes. <laughs> well, for those who have not, don't know what it's all about. It's a superhero film based on the Marvel Comics, now the highest grossing film of all times, $2.8 billion. It also happens to be the sequel to about 22 previous films in the Marvel Comics series of movies. And so unless you've watched the previous Marvel movies, especially those in 2018, you're going to be at a loss understanding Avengers Endgame. And you're going to spoil it for someone else watching it with you because you'll be asking a whole lot of questions about what's happening. In short, don't watch it with me. Unless you're trying to learn to be patient like Job. And in a sense, that's a bit like the Bible, isn't it? Especially the bits in the Old Testament. We can read a book or a chapter or a few verses and don't quite understand how it all fits in. Because we usually think of the Bible as comprising six or six books, which is not incorrect. But it's also one grand story with an ultimate divine author weaving the story together. And unless you understand that story and the themes that unify the Bible, you'll be watching, it'll be like watching the Avengers Endgame without the benefit of how it fits into the overall story. Well, this morning we want to explore a theme that runs through the whole Bible. And understanding this, I believe, will help us figure out the whole storyline of the Bible better. Welcome again to Christ the King. Over the next four weeks, we'll be preaching through a series, thinking about dot, dot, dot. And the four topics that we want to cover are covenant, kingdom, food, and work. We believe these are important topics that can help us understand the Bible better and what it means to live the Christian life. So do come. Our topic this morning is covenant. Covenant is a unifying theme that helps us understand the progressively unfolding storyline of the Bible. The storyline of that one grand story. And in turn, understanding the storyline of the Bible, I, help, I hope, will help us shape our understanding of our Christian faith. I should add that covenant is only one such unifying theme. It's definitely not the only one. I can think of a few others like Christ, like God's glory, the kingdom of God, which we'll touch on next week, and so on. But covenant would definitely be one of those key unifying themes. And this morning, we want to focus on one passage, the one from Genesis 15 that was just read. But expect that you'll be flipping the pages in your Bible back and forth quite often. And I hope the sermon handout in your bulletin will help you follow along. But don't worry if you don't understand anything or if you have any questions at all, do come on uh, to our Thursday small group meeting. Uh, we'll do our best to answer your questions then. Okay, let's dive into the topic of covenant. This morning I want to answer three questions regarding covenant. What is it? How does it unfold in the Bible? And why does it matter? What, how, why? Well, to begin with, what is a covenant? Put simply, a covenant is a commitment that establishes the relationship between two parties. A covenant is a commitment that establishes the relationship between two parties. It's a promise that seals a relationship. 
We just uh, witnessed uh, Eric and Nicolie's wedding yesterday. Quite a number of you were there. And at a wedding, they expressed their commitment to one another in their marriage relationship through their vows, which in essence is a covenant, a promise to love one another, not just in good times, not just when the flames of passion is raging, not just when things are going well, but also in sickness, in poverty, in tough times as well. In fact, they promise to love one another till death parts them. And that's the covenant we've made to one another. Now, we often say that Christianity is a, about a relationship with God. And so that begs the question, what sort of relationship is this? Oh, to begin with, it's not a relationship between two equals. It is a relationship between a greater and a lesser. The Bible uses the word covenant to describe God's relationship with His people. And this relationship, God promises that I will be your God and you'll be my people. And He makes promises to His people and tells them the kind of God that He is and the kind of people He wants them to be. <coughs> and by tracing the different covenants that God makes with His people, we see how the grand story of the whole Bible unfolds. Well, in the Bible, there are at least six different covenants between God and His people. And what I'd like to do this morning is to touch on just four of them. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New covenant. And spending a little bit more time on the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which you just heard read in Genesis 15. First, the context for that. The, the Abrahamic covenant actually unfolds over three chapters in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. Starting with Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, if you just turn a few pages to the left, it's page 8 in the Black Bible and 9 on the Large Print Bible. Let me read verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God called Abraham to leave his country, which was all of the Chaldeans, and to go to a land that God would show him. He made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation, that he would bless him, and make his name great, and to give him offspring, land, and blessings. Now, it's important to see at this juncture that Abraham's obedience wasn't the reason why God called him. Actually, at this stage, Abraham's obedience was pretty half-hearted. Look just a few verses at the end of chapter 11. We are told that he didn't go straight to the land that God would show him. He made a stop at Haran, and then he sat there. Abraham at this juncture was still pretty much a pagan. And so the basis for what God was promising Abraham was pure grace. And that's our first big point here this morning. The basis for God choosing Abraham and promising to bless him in the Abrahamic covenant was pure grace. God made the first move. He chose Abraham to be part of the covenant. In fact, 
every covenant that God establishes with His people is pure grace. He didn't have to do it. Which brings us to our passage this morning. Back to Genesis 15 verse 1. A few pages to your right. We read there, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Here in chapter 15, God is reaffirming His covenant with Abraham that He made back in Genesis 12. And He starts off with the word, Fear not. Why? Why would He start with those words? Because you see, since chapter 12, Abraham, well, what has he gone through, right? Since God promised him. He's gone through a famine. In fact, he had to go down to Egypt as a refugee to escape a famine. And while he was there in Egypt, he had to lie that his wife was actually his sister so that the Egyptians won't kill him just to get her. Apparently, she was very beautiful. And in effect, by doing that, he was setting up the situation to allow the Pharaoh to sleep with his wife, which thankfully never happened. And then after that, he had to fight a war with four kings to rescue his nephew. And on his way back, he met this chap, Melchizedek. Now, what's that all about? Uh, I'm going to leave Keith to explain that when he preaches on uh, Hebrews in the fall. So make sure you come back. But worst of all, Abraham at this stage still had no offspring and no land. His wife, Sarah, was still very barren. And so things haven't gone exactly the way that Abraham thought it would. And that's why God had to tell Abraham to assure him, Fear not, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. God is assuring him, reminding him of the fact that he's Abraham's protector and he will bring about what he promised Abraham earlier. That is to make him into a great nation and give him the land that he promised. But how is this possible? Abraham asked. If he is childless, you see, to be a great nation, he'll need a son. And because he doesn't have a son, the heir of his family fortunes would fall on Eliezer of Damascus, a foreigner. And so God took Abraham outside and asked him to count the stars if he could. In the same way, God promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And at this point, Abraham could have responded with disbelief, with skepticism. But we are told he believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 6 of chapter 15. And now here's our second big point. That it was by faith, his trust in God, in God by faith in God, his trust in God, that Abraham was considered righteous. Not by his works for God. It is only by faith that we can enter into a covenant relationship with God. As someone said, belief alone has brought Abraham into a proper relationship to God. And faith is a necessary condition for us before we can be party to the covenant to claim to be God's own. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it's no different for us today. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Verses worth remembering. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, now, having settled the issue of offspring, Abraham next turned to land. 
God had promised to give Abraham the land. And so Abraham asked, How am I to know that I shall possess it? Now look at verse 9. In another remarkable act of grace, God asked Abraham to bring him a cow, a female goat, and a ram, all three years old, a dove and a young pigeon. And then he was to cut them in half and lay each half over against the other. Now what's that all about? You see, in those days, this was how you ratify a covenant or a treaty between two parties. You cut up the animals into two and both parties walk through them. Basically what you're saying is that if I fail to keep my part of the covenant, let this be the consequence. Let me be like the animals. Cut up. Or actually, if you're interested, you can look at Jeremiah 34 um, to see an instance of how this works when one party doesn't keep their end of the covenant. Right? And in fact, it's also why today we talk about cutting a deal. Right? That's where it comes from. But coming back to Genesis 15, what is remarkable is that after cutting up the animals, Abraham doesn't walk between the cut-up animals. Instead, we read that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Verse 17. And we know from the book of Exodus that the smoke and the fire here represent God himself. And so Abraham and God did not walk through the cut-up pieces together. God alone passed through the animals. In fact, what God's doing is that he's calling a curse down upon himself that he would be like one of these animals if he did not fulfill his promise to Abraham. It was an unconditional promise by God. God was committed to fulfilling the covenant regardless of what happens. Now, what then does that mean for Abraham? Well, turn a few pages uh, to your right in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. And there God said, For I, and this is God speaking, For I have chosen him, that is Abraham, right? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Clearly, while Abraham is in a right relationship with God, the promises God made to Abraham depended upon his obedience and the obedience of the future generations. They were to keep the way of the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, for instance, one of the things they had to do was also to re- they were required to be circumcised. And so there were conditions for Abraham and his descendants to receive the promises. Abraham's children cannot presume on the promises of the covenant. They must believe and obey to receive these promises. God will certainly fulfill His covenant but the fulfillment will be realized only with Abraham's offspring who are faithful to the covenant. That's the covenant that God made with Abraham, a covenant that was never abrogated or, or replaced. Now fast forward through the book of Genesis and we see the promise of offspring being fulfilled. True to God's promise, Abraham had a son, Isaac. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, who became the father of 12 sons, which then later became the 12 tribes of Israel. But when the book of Exodus opens, we find Israel enslaved in Egypt. 
So keeping his promise to Abraham, God raised Moses who led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in the Sinai wilderness, we now have the beginnings of a nation, a people free. Israel was now poised to enter the promised land. And this is where our Exodus reading early on pick up from. If you turn to Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, it's on page 56 of the Black Bible and uh, Rush Green Bible is 67, 56 and 67. Let me read. On a third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, Israel then encamped before the mountain. Moses went up to God, and, and, and the Lord called out to Moses, and he said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, God is now no longer dealing with one man, Abraham. He's dealing with a nation. And this is what God wants for this nation, Israel. He wants Israel to be his treasured possession, to be his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wants Israel to be a nation set apart from all the neighboring nations. And that's what it means to be holy, set apart. He wants this nation set apart to be a kingdom of priests. They will be like priests mediating God's blessings and presence to all the neighboring nations. And Israel will be his treasured possession. While simply put, God wants Israel to be the model society for the world. To show the rest of the world what it means to live under God, the way God intended for everyone. And how will Israel do that? The answer is another covenant, one made with Moses on Mount Sinai. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. And through this covenant, God will provide Israel with the law to guide them as they live out their calling as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It would define what life would look like for this nation as it enters into the land that God had promised them. How should the people of this nation relate with God? How will they worship their God, the King? How should they relate with one another and with others? And so the very next chapter, Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments. And following that, in fact, all the way until the end of Exodus 24, six chapters there, we see the Mosaic Covenant being spelled out. But what's important to realize here is that God did not give the law to establish His relationship with Israel. He did not give the law and then see if they could follow, keep the law before He freed them from slavery to the Egyptians. He had already freed them from slavery. God gave the law to show His people how to express their relationship with Him as a nation. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, the start of the Ten Commandments. 
And God spoke all this word saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's a preamble to the Ten Commandments. He's setting the record straight. You guys are freed now. You're already freed. And then the Ten Commandments starts with, You shall have no other gods before me. You see, before God gave the law, He already saved them and brought them out of slavery. That's pure grace. And so the question is, will Israel obey the law and become the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God intended for them to be? Well, there were certainly brief moments in Israel's history when the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants seems to be, uh, seemed to be fulfilled. Like when David became king, remember? In Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, when David became king and brought the ark into Jerusalem. At that point in time, if you recall, Israel was a nation settled in the land that God had promised, enjoying the blessing of rest from the uh, surrounding enemies. And King David was administering justice and equity to all his people. And now, the blessing of God's presence, symbolized by the ark, was to find a permanent place in Jerusalem. And the next, very next chapter in 2 Samuel 7, King David wanted to build a house, a temple for the ark. But God said that it would be his son, Solomon, who would build it. And then God made a covenant with David then then to build him a house instead, a dynasty. God promised David that there will be a Davidic king whose throne he will establish forever, an everlasting king. This would be the Davidic covenant. But apart from brief periods like this, for most parts of Israel's history, for long stretches in the books of, of, of Judges, for instance, or the, the book of First and Second Kings, for instance, we see that both the leaders of Israel and their people were breaking faith with the Mosaic Covenant. They did not obey God's law. In fact, it was so bad that God finally sent them into exile and Israel lost their land. But we shouldn't be surprised because Moses, who gave the law before he died, knew that Israel would not be able to obey the law. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 29. Deuteronomy 31, verse 29. And Moses writes, For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the work of your hands. And so, His attention for the three covenants. How will God fulfill His covenant with Abraham of offspring, land and blessings when His people continue to sin at every turn, breaking the Mosaic covenant? And then how could God's promise in the Davidic covenant survive with all this turmoil? And this was something that the prophets had to grapple with. Because in this later part of Israel's history, the prophets have become the watchdogs for the covenants. And their answer, the prophets' answers was, uh, was this. God would keep his covenant with Abraham. He would keep his promise to have a king forever from one of David's offspring. And he would replace the Mosaic Covenant 
with a new covenant. Look with me in Jeremiah 31. Turn to page 618 on the Black Bible. 618 and 736, 736 in the Lush Green Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 34. Let me read for you. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now that's God's answer. A new covenant. And we know in the New Testament that's the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Because it is through Jesus Christ's perfect life, His death on the cross, and His resurrection that God resolved all the tensions. You see, the genius of this new covenant is that instead of making His covenant with sinful Israelites, God made it with Jesus, the perfect God-man. And Jesus was able to perfectly fulfill all the previous covenants. For instance, Jesus is the son of Abraham, choosing a new people for himself, bringing blessing to all the nations. And as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, If we belong to Jesus, we are Abraham's offspring, as according to the promise. And so he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And by his life, Jesus kept the whole law for us perfectly. Galatians 4, chapter 4, verse 4. And by his death, hung on a cross, he took on the covenant curses for us. Galatians 3, chapter, uh, verse 13. Jesus is a true Israelite who is able to keep all the conditions of the law fulfilling the Mosaic covenant. And Jesus is the son of David. And God made him the eternal king so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Philippians 2.10 he fulfills the Davidic covenant. And that's why when we move to the New Testament, you see all the images and all the hope for the Israelites in the Old Testament being transferred to Jesus in the New Testament because he's the true Israelite. And today, we are able to participate in this new covenant and enjoy the promises of the new covenant by putting our faith in Christ who has kept and continues to keep the covenant for us. He is our representative in the new covenant. So that when God views us, He views us in terms of Jesus' actions and status. My sins, your sins, our disobedience are no longer counted against us because Jesus has died as the sacrificial Passover lamb to atone and pay for all my sins. He has taken on the curses that I deserve under the old covenant. And that's not all. Because Jesus led a perfect life, the blessings due to his obedience 
is now imputed to me because he represents me. And so I get all the promises of blessings in the new covenant and none of the curses for my disobedience. Now, isn't that good news? And what are these promises of the new covenant? Look at the Jeremiah passage again. God's law will be written in our hearts, not on tablets of stone. As someone puts it, the law will be a warm delight to the people, not a cold prescription. We shall all know the Lord intimately and immediately. Unlike the old covenant, where only special classes of people like, like the prophets, the priests and the kings have access to God. Our sins will be forgiven forever. And we are promised God's presence. He will be our God and we will be His people. So why does it matter? Why do all these things we have heard this morning matter to us today? Well, as we come to a close, let me make two points. Well, firstly, I was having coffee with Samuel this past week. Don't ask me why, but our conversation started to touch on cricket. A game that I have very little understanding about and definitely no patience for. Well, but Samuel was trying very hard to explain to me why cricket was so important to him. You know, he loves history. And, and so for him, every bat of the ball at a test match today is a continuation of some 130 years of cricket history. Wow, I never thought of cricket that way before. Uh, I remember I've gone to watch a test match once in my life. This was years ago. I, I remember all I was thinking about was when the game was going to end and whether at the end of it all there will be a winner. Because, you know, you can go through a few games and have no winner at all. I hope our understanding of the covenants today will help us see the grand sweep of salvation history. Are you part of that history? I don't think you're going to miss a lot in life if you're not part of the history of cricket. But I think if you're not part of God's salvation history, I know Samuel backs to differ, but, but if you're not part of God's salvation history and you're not in the new covenant with Him through Christ, you're going to lose big. And it matters. And so how can we be part of the new covenant? By faith. Because that's been the case all along. Since the time of Abraham. He believed the Lord and God counted to him as righteousness. Remember? We need to put our trust in Jesus and we can't afford to be presumptuous on this. Coming to church doesn't make us Christians any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. It is faith that counts. Make sure that you know who you are putting your faith in. Secondly, we learned this morning that our God is a God who makes promises. Promises for our good to give us a hope and a future. More importantly, this is a God who keeps promises. It's easy to make promises, a different ball game altogether to keep them. And the Bible is full of God's promises to us. Not just those in Jeremiah 31 that we, we saw a moment ago. Just turn to page 7 of your bulletin today for some examples. Promises of rest. Promises of forgiveness. Promises of provision. Promises of strength. Many more. 
And if you are under the new covenant, you can be confident that God will keep all His promises to us. And if we are in Christ, we need not be afraid that our disobedience will mean that we cannot enjoy the promises of God. Because as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.